Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Good morning, church. As we open the Word of God, Gabby has already done a very nice uh, job in bringing our Scripture to us, but I invite you to open your Bibles again to Acts 7, 54. I thank you, Jim, for that beautiful message and music. That's very appreciated. Acts 7, 54. The context of our message today, the context of this passage, comes from the early church, the successes and the struggles that they had. Now, I would submit to you that when Jesus came to this earth, his ministry had many, many aspects to it, but two very primary goals that he had. Number one, to secure your salvation and mine. Do I hear an amen? I mean, this is the core of God's message to us of his love and his plan to take us to heaven for eternity. Jesus came, not only did he secure our salvation, but he showed the character of God. Number two, Jesus came to establish the church. The church is his method of proclaiming his message to a broken world. Now, there's a problem with the church. It's full of people. It's full of sinners. And in fact, a pastor that uh, we worked to, together with in the Oregon Conference was giving a devotion to pastor's meeting, and he, he said one day in that, in that devotion, he said, when anything in the church goes right, it's a miracle. Isn't there a lot of real truth to that? When you pull a bunch of people together who are sinners and something goes right, that's pretty amazing. And yet the power of God has been doing wonderful things with his church since that time. So the setup to this is that the church was doing very, very well. There was persecution beginning But then there was that little hiccup where the widows of the Hellenists, the Greeks, were not getting the shared food, and there was a disturbance. And if you want to get people fighting, do something about a sports venue or don't give them food. I mean, that really stirs things up pretty quickly. And they fixed it. And one of the fixes was to designate deacons in the church. Now, the apostles were carrying all the load, but they dispersed the responsibilities of the church. Now, sometimes in our setting as a church, especially the Seventh-day Adventist church, we think of the deacons are those who open and close the church and take care of the facilities. But there's ministry that goes way, way beyond that in the scripture. So because Stephen was one of those filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was a preacher. So the preacher 
the preaching shouldn't just be left to those who have been to the seminary. God designates all of us as ministers. Preaching takes place more effectively in an interaction in a business and here and there and in homes than it does from the pulpit, I would say. Preaching takes place when people interact with each other and share the power of the gospel. Stephen was so effective that those who were opposed to Jesus pulled him together into the Sanhedrin, and there he gave his message. Now, his message was fairly innocuous as it goes, but in 51, verse 51, it changes, and it gets really, really focused. Now, there's a little mantra that I have felt through life just observing when things need to be done. Do the right thing in the right way, at the right time, and for the right reason. Now, I would flat out say to you, I believe that all four of those are very, very important in order for the right spiritual outcome to take place. Now, if we pulled aside and had small groups and talked about what spiritual outcomes might be, one of the things I would say, a spiritual outcome, is when God's cause is advanced both corporately and individually. Anytime someone takes a step toward God, that's a good spiritual outcome. Sometimes we think just the big things happen, but even those little incremental, when you're witnessing to someone in their life and something needs to change, one or two small steps is a significant thing in turning toward God, the right spiritual outcome. This was the right time for Stephen to get focused. So he says this really hard message. You stiff-necked people. And this really cuts to the quick. Uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, referring obviously to Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered and you who received the law as delivered by the angels did not keep it. And this is where everything falls apart. There is a riot right there in that place. The Sanhedrin, no more dignified. Gnashing of teeth, screaming, plugging their ears, grab Stephen, out, take him out of the city, and they stone him to death. You ever thought what it would be like to be stoned to death? I mean, this is brutal. There are, there's no good things about being stoned. It's not quick, it's not painless. Stone after stone crashing down on the body. But there's an interesting thread that seems to go through both scripture and even through the dark ages when people of God are martyred. 
They think about God and their witness more than themselves. And when an individual believes in God, when an individual trusts in God, when an individual serves God, then that's the focus of whatever happens to them, not themselves. And even as Stephen is being martyred, he asks God not to hold it against them. And God shows him a vision that goes even into heaven. And then Stephen goes to sleep in the Lord. Now there are many in the Christian belief that uh, think when a person dies, the soul separates from the body and goes to heaven. Many within the Christian belief thinks differently, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that when a person dies, they go to sleep. That fits with the resurrection theology, it fits with judgment theology, it fits with the millennial theology, millennium theology. It is a fact of Scripture, and over and over and over again, Scripture talks about death as sleep. So Stephen comes to a point where he knows nothing. He dies. The last thing he remembers seeing, the vision, the stones, and Saul, the young man standing there assenting to his death. So he doesn't know anything about his family, the church as it goes forward, he doesn't know anything about the Middle Ages, he doesn't know anything about the Reformation, he doesn't know anything about the Great Awakening, the process that continues on. He doesn't know, as we don't know, what day it will be when the Father in Heaven makes an announcement that it's time to come back. Now picture that. I'm going to take a little license here. I'm going to use just a little imagination, but I think my imagination falls consistent with what Scripture says will happen. The Father will one day make an announcement in heaven. Maybe he calls everybody together, the hosts of who all is there, and he says, this is the day we shall go and redeem those who have believed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Would there be an amen in the crowd? All right. All right, folks, come on now, stay with me here. Now, let's just suppose a championship football game, maybe the national championship, the, the stadium is filled only with one side, is 15 seconds to go, and the home team pulls it off with a touchdown. Think about that whole stadium going nuts. Think about heaven. When God makes the announcement that finally it is finished, we're going to go and finish it off. I think even if there were white Seventh-day Adventists, they might scream and yell a little bit. They might even say amen. They might even say 
Hallelujah. The energy in heaven among the angels will be profound at that time. Maybe God makes an announcement, uh, Alpha group, you know where you're going. You're getting the dead in Christ first, and Beta group. Remember, you don't bring them up until the other ones go. Okay, and he says, let's go. And there is a wonderful whooshing sound as heaven empties and comes to this earth. Stephen, in the sleep of death, is awakened. For those of you who may question creation, I would challenge you to say, how do you have the resurrection if God doesn't have the power to create? Stephen's broken bones, his shattered head, his body is revived, is recreated. He comes forth and ascends unto Jesus, and the journey to heaven begins. The arrival at the holy city, the going through the gates, the coronation of the Lamb of God. Now, folks, that's going to stir some excitement. As everyone in heaven bows down to the Lamb of God who has secured our salvation, the banquet-eating table, all that goes on, the celebration will be absolutely amazing. Maybe even some sort of holy fireworks, I don't know. But there will be a time when Stephen's angel will say, Stephen, let's go see your mansion. Oh, okay, and they go. Take a turn here and a turn there. No need for the GPS. The angel knows where they're going. They get to the house, and it is amazing. I believe that when God makes a mansion for you, it's going to be custom. It's going to be tailored to you. <clears throat> I think uh, my mansion may have a, uh, a water slide that goes down from the bedroom into a big hot tub. And on the side, there's going to be maybe a mango machine, a mango smoothie machine, and maybe another machine that makes root beer milkshakes, and maybe a pie safe that has strawberry rhubarb pie. But I also think there could be a wall in every mansion that shows the life history of our personal lives. And as we look at it, there are going to be some things that we recognize. And as we look at it, we're well, what happened there? The angel will tell us something that we didn't even know about that turned our life and steered our lives in amazing ways. And the, the mansion will be amazing. But pretty soon, I picture the angel saying to Stephen, Stephen, you ought to go see your neighbors. Yeah, that would be fun. Out the front door, down the sidewalk, through the front gate, hangs a left goes next door, knocks on the door, the door opens, and it's Peter. Wow, what a, what a wonderful reunion that will be. And they will talk for a while, and then Peter will say with a twinkle in his eye, Stephen, you ought to go to your other neighbor. And Stephen trots out the front door, down the sidewalk to the other side of his mansion, knocks on the door, and the door opens. And standing there is a guy named Saul. 
think about it. And they look at each other with pause. Now I submit to you, Stephen might have one or two reactions. One reaction might be, what are you doing here, you dirty dog? I remember seeing you when they dragged me out of the city. I remember seeing you standing there as I was being stoned. You know how hard, how hard it was to be stoned to death? What in the world are you doing? What is God thinking? Here you are. I want to be moved somewhere else. I don't want to be your neighbor. That's a human, sinful reaction. It's all too common to have that kind of reaction when we are confronted with someone who has done us wrong. I submit to you that Stephen may come up with another response when he sees Saul. And that response might be amazing grace. Because those who understand the love of God, the character of God, the generosity of God, the desire of God to have every one of us possible in with him in heaven for eternity. Those who understand that know that God has the power to transition lives, to help lives become repentant, to help lives be different, and to save lives. So, is it possible that when you and I get to heaven, we're going to round the corner of some street someday, and there standing in front of us will be someone who's hurt as badly, who's maybe been violent against us, hurt our reputation, rejected us, taken money from us, taken advantage of us, and numerous different ways. Is, there, is it possible that you and I will have that? Is it possible that we could round the corner and somebody will say to us, what are you doing here? Because we are all sinners and we can all look back at points in time, people are watching us and say, boy, that was bad. But the simple reality is that the power of the gospel says that God's favorite thing is forgiving repentant sinners. Now we're all aware of the story of the prodigal son. It's a trilogy. Remember the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And what happens every time one of those three trilogies finds that which is being sought after? There is rejoicing because God 
loves finding and forgiving repentant sinners. Barb and I spent almost nine years in the Lake Union and right there in Berrien Springs, and it was an amazing joy to associate with our seminary professors. Uh, just a, a crowd of dedicated, wonderful people who loved the Lord. One of those told a story about the Middle East mindset that tells us more about the prodigal son reality. He said somebody had done some research in the Middle East. In the Middle East, you can have cities that are as modern as any city in the world, but you can go a few miles out into the country and you can find villages that look very similar to what they did hundreds, even thousands of years ago. And this researcher went into those villages. He told the story of the prodigal son. Son comes to the father, asks for his inheritance, the father gives it to him, the son leaves, squanders it in terrible living and then comes back repentant and asked to be a servant within the household. Tells that story in these villages and asks the question, have you ever seen anything like that happen in your experience? And of all the places he went, there were only two times that he got a response that someone had seen such a story. One of those, the son comes to the father, asks for his inheritance, and the father kills him on the spot. Now, if you think that's just something that is strange to the Middle East, I, we've, got, we've had friends who, who have been in that scenario, a friend in particular I'm thinking of, who proclaimed his love for Jesus and to become a Christian, and his family literally took him out and tried to kill him and left him for dead. This is modern. But if you think it is just modern, think back. So in Deuteronomy, I think it's 21, it talks about if a son is rebellious, the father and mother can take hold of him and bring him before the elders. And a Levitical law, if he is found to be guilty, can be stoned. Hence, the commandment of the ten that says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth. This is the Middle Eastern mindset that Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And the father, the old man in the story, does something that Middle Eastern old men never do. There are stories of old men in the Middle East who have the option of running or dying and they choose dying. The father runs to the son to grab him and welcome him back because I submit to you that one of God's very, very favorite things is forgiving repentant sinners. So Barb and I, one of our fondest memories, and in my mind there's a lot of them, 
was the two trips that we took with each of our daughters and their husband uh, to Europe before they had children. And one of the stops was Salzburg, Austria. Now there are probably more ladies in this sanctuary than there are men who know what happened in Salzburg that warms the hearts of women. The filming of the movie, The Sound of Music. Now, I see a lot of great young people here. Maybe some of you have seen this old, old movie. But for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's a chick flick. Okay. It, it's, it, women, women, I mean, men are good, but women love it. And so we had to go on a Sound of Music tour to see where all these things were filmed. And we went out to the countryside, which is beautiful, to the church where the wedding was, the long train, and all those things. And while we were running around in this uh, van, they were playing music. And you can imagine which music it was. <laughs> One of those songs that we heard goes something like this. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Aren't you just getting all warm inside? Brown paper packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favorite things. Okay, you got the message here? I'm sorry, guys, this is our turn now. These are a few of my favorite things. A finely, the wine of a finely balanced table saw. The rattle and the whirl of an impact wrench. The feel of the car, how it rides when there are new tires on it, and how the engine seems to run just a bit better after the oil is changed. Empty trash cans, full fuel tanks, walking on the beach with Barbara holding hands, seeing our grandchildren grow up. These are a few of my favorite things. But I submit to you that the Savior who paid it all, who gave it all, who sacrificed it, who took the great chance. His favorite thing is when you and I come before him with a repentant spirit and ask for him to be the king of your heart. At the Calhoun Church, one of the things we do for those who are baptized is a pictorial book. And sometimes when we're getting ready <clears throat> and, and taking pictures uh, behind uh, the platform, I'll ask some of the kids, have you ever uh, heard this song, there's a flag flying high in the castle of my heart? Now, some of you here have heard that. Some of them actually haven't because it is a bit of an older song. And it's, there's a flag flying high in the castle of my heart in the castle of my heart in the castle of my heart there's a flag flying high in the castle of my heart what for the king is in residence there and i say to them you know that song yes i know it i said 
today you are raising the flag in the castle of your heart indicating that the king is in residence there when you go to castles in the UK if the king or the queen is there the flag is up and sometimes in the back of the book I put a little a little flag over Windsor Castle showing as a reminder because the king must be in residence there. Stephen was one who understood. And so I don't think that Stephen would ever say to Saul, now the apostle Paul, what are you doing here? He will look at him and immediately understand that the pursuing, loving, forgiving God of heaven got to Saul. And it's possible that Saul, now the Apostle Paul, might even tell Stephen that witnessing his death was a factor in his conversion. Hallelujah. And so Stephen will undoubtedly say, amazing grace. But you know the song, Amazing Grace, doesn't really talk about others. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch like me. But God is ready. I hope you'll understand that as I close with this story. <clears throat> a young boy named Billy and his sister were in the car heading to Grandma and Grandpa's house right after school let out for summer vacation. And they finally arrived after some time and everybody piled out of the car and mom and dad were hugging on grandma and grandpa and the kids were hugging on them and <clears throat> there was a little, little rejoicing, a little reunion going on and uh, mom and dad were there for, for a while, there were several hours and they got back in the car and Billy and his sister started what they always loved doing, being at grandma and grandpa's farm for a, a few, uh, two or three weeks. So a day or two later, Billy's sitting in the kitchen as grandma's preparing lunch and grandpa walks in with a silly grandpa look on his face. And he reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out something that he had personally made for Billy. It was a slingshot. Okay, now sometimes people tell the story of David and Goliath and they say David had a slingshot. No, 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 he had a sling. This is a slingshot. And he took Billy out and showed him how to use the slingshot. And Billy prized what Grandpa had made for him. And uh, he was out a little while later, and he put some cans, uh, tin cans, on fence posts. And he was walking down the fence line, shooting those cans, and he was really getting quite accurate. In fact, he was kind of proud of himself. And uh, see, tin cans can really only hold a young man's attention for a certain amount of time. After a while, the attention span is broken, and Billy sees out of the corner of his eye 
something moving across the yard. It's Grandma's pet duck. This was a special pet duck. I'm not talking about just some quack quack duck. I'm talking about a cuddling duck and grandma would feed it and talk to it and that they had a relationship. This is grandma's pet duck. And Billy said, I'm going to scare that duck. So he took a stone and he put it in the pouch of that slingshot and he aimed that for right behind the duck. He said, I'm going to shoot in a dirtle and it'll scare the duck and it'll quack 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 around a little bit. And, and so he he let go, and that stone went zinging right for where he intended it to go. But the duck made a U-turn. And the stone hits the duck square in the head. And the duck jerked, and it flopped over on its side and its wings flapped a couple of times and its little web feet moved and then they quit moving. Billy ran up and he picked up the duck's head and he put it down because it was a dead duck. He couldn't believe what he had done. He looked around and he scooped the duck up and he took it behind the barn and buried it. Well, that night at supper, Billy was eating away and nothing seemed to be wrong and life was good. And at the end of supper, there was a routine that Billy and his sister were supposed to do. Both would clear the table, put the food away, and then they alternated meals on who would wash the dishes. And it was Billy's turn to wash the dishes. And so, yeah, that was sister's turn, I'm sorry, to wash the dishes. And so uh, Billy was there and, and he was ready to walk out and his, sis his sister said, Billy, I want you to wash the dishes tonight. And Billy said, well, if you'll remember, I washed the dishes at lunch and I'm not doing the dishes tonight. I want you to wash the dishes. I'm not gonna wash the dishes. I want you to wash the dishes. You are gonna wash the dishes. And it was about that time Billy got ugly. He said, I'm not gonna wash the dishes and you're not even my sister. We just found you alongside the road one day and brought you home and that, I don't have to wash dishes. And usually when he would say terrible things like that, I mean, she would go ballistic, but she was cool as a cucumber. And she said, I want you to wash the dishes because I saw you kill the duck and I'm going to tell if you don't. What do you suppose Billy did? He washed the dishes. Next morning they were staying in the same room, uh, twin beds, and he got up and got dressed and was heading out the door. Billy, I want you to make my bed this morning. Another exchange, another threat, and Billy made the bed. This continued, Billy doing things he didn't want to do for fear of being found out. Well, in the afternoon, Grandpa took Sister into town in the pickup truck. 
Billy was there alone with Grandma. He was sitting on the back steps of the back porch, miserable. Life was not going well. He knew what he had to do. He stood up, ascended the two or three steps into the screen door of the back, uh, through the kitchen to the front room of the house. There, Grandma was sitting in her favorite rocking chair, mending. And he came fairly close to Grandma and said, Grandma, I, 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 I need to tell you something. What is it, Billy? Oh, Grandma, I, I accidentally killed your pet duck. And Grandma didn't even miss a stitch. She said, I know. And your sister didn't tell me. And then Billy was really confused. Grandma, how did you know? Billy, come here. And Billy came close alongside Grandma's rocking chair, and she put her arm around his little waist and pulled him over and showed him out the window where he could see the spot the little duck died. He stood up with both confusion and amazement. All this time he had been suffering over what he had done because of the accuser. And tears filled Billy's eyes. And he said, oh, Grandma, I didn't mean to kill your duck. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I really hope that you'll remember Grandma's words next. Billy, I forgave you when I saw you kill the duck. I've just been waiting for you to come and ask. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you are all about saving repentant sinners. Every one of us, Father, we know are chosen to be saved, but we must choose you. Please be with every heart in this sanctuary where commitments need to be made understanding of your direction need to be recognized and the full acceptance of your love received. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.